we doing, folks? My guest today is going to be Mark Eaton. Mark was a former NBA All-Star for the Utah Jazz. He was a two-time NBA Defensive Player of the Year. He made the All-Defensive Team five times, and he still holds the record for blocks in a season and career block average per game. He also received one of the highest honors in the sport by having his jersey retired by the Utah Jazz. After his career on the court, Mark turned to motivational speaking and became the best-selling author of the book, The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. In this episode, we discuss his journey and what has driven him to succeed so far. I hope you enjoy, and please make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Awesome. Rolling. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time, sir. I appreciate it. No problem. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's been, uh, as we were talking about a little bit before, you know, it's been uh, a little while. I played a little uh, football back in high school with, uh, with one of your sons, and, uh, you know, he, he was blocking in the trenches, and I was the uh, slow guy that couldn't beat a snail, but at least had good hands. So I think it was a good <laughs> thing I stuck to uh, skiing rather than football. That's right. You had <laughs> other skills. You were good to go. <laughs> <laughs> so, um one of the things that was just, uh, I, I always admired from a distance, you know, when you're kind of a little bit younger and going in through high school and those things, and you see this, uh, you know, NBA all-stars, got his jersey retired and just still a leader in blocks and all these things was just so intimidating. Uh, and you're such a nice guy. You're such a great person. And still, when you're kind of that younger age, though, you're like, oh. I don't want to go over and talk to him. (laughs) And one of the things I always admired from a distance was just um, the fact that you were always so great uh, defensively and the NBA, you know, five time NBA, all defensive team blocks, all that. And then the one thing I always at least learned from my dad and playing basketball and everything else is that defense is, is so much about heart and, and drive and, and want to, and that kind of attitude to put in the extra effort. And, so kind of speaking of that, I'm just curious, where does that, where does that drive uh, to, to, you know, kind of give it your all and, and your heart? Where does that, where does that kind of come from for you? Well, I think it, uh, for my personal story, it dates back to um, the coach who taught me how to play basketball when I was 21. I was working at an auto mechanic in a, in a tire store in Southern California. And this junior college coach convinced me to give basketball another try. And, and um the uh, and so after going back to junior college and working with him and then the head coach who had been one of uh, Coach Wooden's first All-American players at UCLA, they kind of distilled in me this importance of of playing the whole game. You know, it wasn't just about scoring, but it was really about, you know, you, you had to get the ball first to be able to go and do anything with it. And uh, so we were a very defensively oriented team. And then I just kind of naturally found myself blocking shots and kind of clogging up the middle. Uh, And um, so it was something I always appreciated and it was something I could do. And then as time went on and I moved on to UCLA, uh, you know, I just found that that was something I really needed to focus on. And so as time went on, it became a bigger and bigger part of my career and a bigger, bigger part of who I was as a, as a player it really defined me. And that's the whole thing about sports is, right, you want to find that one thing you're really good at. Uh, sure. You know, you can be a great skier or you could be a great mogul skier, right? And uh, so let's let's drill down and really focus deeply in, in doing this one thing really, really well, because that's going to propel you the furthest. And, um, and so I, I learned to do that. And when I came to the NBA, I mean, I wasn't the greatest scorer, wasn't the fast, fastest runner or anything, but I could do one thing really, really well, and that was help our team win games by playing defense. 
Mm-hmm. Now, uh, kind of going back a little bit, I mean, 21 is such a, a late age to kind of really be getting in, into basketball. Now, you were, you were a car mechanic, right? Kind of. Uh, yeah, I was. I, uh, I didn't play much in high school, and I just made the decision that basketball and sports weren't for me, and I went to trade school, and I learned to be an auto mechanic. And, um, and I just got a job in, in Southern California where I lived in a tire store doing all kinds of mechanical kinds of things. And um, they kind of given it up. And, and this junior college coach had a background of working with big guys, which is a pretty rare thing, mm-hmm. uh, I find even today. And, um, and he was willing to teach me those things and be with me every day and run with me in the mornings and work out with me in the evenings. And um, I think a half, more than half of the, of the decision to do it was the commitment he made to me as a coach uh, to really be there for me and show me how to do it. Never wanted anything from me other than a ticket to a Laker game here or there. Uh, became a lifelong friend. He just passed this summer. Uh, and, um, you know, we had a, a 40-year friendship. Uh, and, you know, it's, and, that, and that to me was just a you know, the, the, the biggest reason why I tried it and tried to do it because he believed in me. And um, it wasn't easy. I had ups and downs and had to learn how to be an athlete and how to be a good athlete. And then, you know, as you experienced in skiing, as you move up in the levels, it gets a little tougher. It's a little harder. You have to push a little deeper and you've got to find things out about yourself that, uh, uh, you know, you didn't know previously. But um, the, his uh, commitment to always being there and being able to call him at 10 o'clock at night after a game and saying, geez, I can't buy a rebound today. Like what's going on. Um, that's, um, that was a difference for me. So did he really kind of help instill like that belief? Like when earlier on through high school and stuff like that, you're kind of tinkering and, and is that just a little bit of like difference? Like you liked it, you kind of dabbled and then you have this person kind of come around the mechanic shop like, hey, like you, you have some potential. You can really. Yeah, I, you know, in, in high school, as we all experience, I mean, sometimes you'll have one good coach at the high school in one particular sport. But usually it's the English teacher who wants to make an extra couple grand for the, the you know, the winner. Right. And um, so you don't get the best coaches always. And that was the experience I had in high school. The coaches really didn't know what to do with me. I didn't know what to do with me. I was growing fast. I was uncoordinated. And um, so it just, there just wasn't anything there. And when I met coach Tom later on, when I was 21, he seemed to know what to do with me. He's like, I can teach you how to play basketball as a big man, you know, at seven feet tall. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know specific things that you don't know about the game of basketball. And I, in my own mind, had this idea of what basketball was about. And the first time he took me out of the court for half an hour, he blew all those things out of the water. He showed me stuff I'd never heard of, never seen before, and really opened my eyes to maybe that I could do this. And, right. you know, and it was, a, it was a big ask to consider doing that again, uh, because I'd been, you know, just working on cars and partying with my friends on the weekends so <laughs> it was a big it was a big adjustment um, but um, but I but I just you know he saw something in me and he, and he sparked an interest in me where I said all right I'll, I'll give this a try for a little while and, and see where it goes mm-hmm. and that commitment so so deciding to go to UCLA I mean obviously growing up John Wooden I mean Red, if, if you're a coach out there you kind of have to read John Wooden's books they're some of the best that they're 
there are, you know, they call me coach is, is one of my favorites. And so going through, you, you know, you, you transferred there, but was that always, uh, was coach Tom at, uh, was he at UCLA or how did that kind of, that transition work? No, he, he no. stayed at the junior college, okay. um, but we were in contact all the time. And, and actually that ended up not being the best move. Uh, I think there were other schools I could have gone to and received more playing time. UCLA had just come off going to the national championship game against Louisville in 1980 and lost. Um, but they were number two in the country in the polls at the beginning of the year. And I just thought, wow, you know, how can I turn down an opportunity to go play at a school that I've grown up around and, and been through that whole era, like you mentioned. Yeah. Um, but I ended up not playing much. I ended up sitting on the bench and uh, it was really a frustrating couple of years. Uh, but it was my coach, Tom, who kept saying, you know, hey, you know, this isn't about this year, next year. Like we're the things we're working on and things we're building are to have an opportunity to play professionally, whether it's in the NBA or in Europe or wherever it might be. And uh, so he said, you've got to keep working. And there were days I wanted to quit and things, you know, just, I was just frustrated beyond beliefs at some, uh, many moments during those two years. But um, he just kept, he just kept saying, kept, you know, keep working, go to the, you know, go to the weight room early, go out on the track, do the extra things, because I'm telling you, you will have an opportunity to try out at the next level down the road. And for some reason I believed him and I kept doing it. And I was, you know, the first guy I practiced, last one to leave did the running, did the shooting, hit the weight room, did all the extra things you needed to do. And, you know, sure enough, later on, when I did have an opportunity to try out for the NBA, the Utah Jazz were at least, they were interested and said, you know, you're kind of rough, but we'll, we'll give you a go. We can tell you've been working and, and, um, and gave me a chance to, to, to play for the Jazz. Hmm. You know, it was funny, as you were talking there, you are talking about all the things you need to do, you know, being the first one to be in the basketball court, last one to leave when you're practicing and things like that. Like it's, it, it seems like that's just second nature to your kind of personality. But I would say mo most of those people, especially in this day and age, they want immediate results. So the day in, day out yeah, kind of grind it, of it, having to go. It is. This. And it, it is a grind and it's not easy. And there, and no, that doesn't come naturally to me. I, you know, I hated going to practice some days. I hated running. <laughs> and it was my, that was my job for, for the better part of 16 years was to run. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and it wasn't always my favorite thing, but I, I love the competition and I loved pushing myself. I love seeing what, what could be done. And, and, you know, being out on the court uh, when the team's playing well and all the cylinders are firing or, you know, probably the same as hitting that line on the moguls course where it's just all comes together uh, is an unbelievable experience. And, yeah. um, and so I just kept going because I just said, you know, I'm just going to keep doing this until the doors are all shut. And, um, you know, I, I could have been three months after I started, but it turned out to be, you know, between college and the NBA. I'm uh, pretty close to 16 years of basketball. And um, uh, that was, um, that was a lot of fun and what an amazing experience and beyond every, anything I'd ever imagined, you know, especially when I was back there, you know, uh, in fixing carburetors and in, in Buena Park, California. <laughs> no, it's an, I mean, it's an unbelievable journey. And one of the things that I, I, so when you're going through and you're thinking about UCLA, cause you did get uh, the opportunity, the Phoenix Suns drafted you, right? Like yeah, they did. It was kind of, a, yeah, it was an unusual uh, rule back there where if your class had graduated, whether or not you were in school, you were eligible for the draft. And okay. teams sometimes would take a flyer on guys and say, well, we're just going to tie them up for a year. You could keep a, a player's rights for, 
you know, up until the next draft. And, um, but at that time, it was a, you know, what they offered me, what was called a make good contract, meaning that you had to be on the team beyond the 1st of January to be guaranteed you get the full salary, which at that time was $30,000. And, um, you know, and if you got cut anywhere prior to that, you only got a pro rata share and you gave up your eligibility as an amateur. And so, you know, it it was a wake up call that, wow, people were interested in me and they forced me to, you know, I I kind of doubled down on, on what I was doing. Um, And at the same time, it wasn't really a a realistic opportunity because I I didn't want to give up two years of college to, or at that time, three years of college to go and to go and try that hoping that maybe I'd make the team. Yeah. Uh, So, um, so that's why I stuck around, but it was, um, um, but then, uh, and I can't remember what was the rest of your question. Oh, it's just um, the, the fact of, of just that transition to the pros. Cause I know that you said, you know, you wanted to make, if you were good enough to kind of make that jump. So the fact that, you know, that, that answers that of like, all right. And, and it sounds like coach Tom was definitely influential in like, Hey, we need to get a little yeah. bit better yeah. and you still got to keep working on your, your craft. Cause I mean, you said when, right. the, when the jazz drafted you, you know, you're still a little rough around the edges and fourth round, they, they kind of uh, take their own flyer on you and, well, they did. And they, and they surrounded me with, uh, with coaches as well. Um, there were two coaches here, then Phil Johnson, who was a great NBA coach and Jerry Sloan's assistant for decades. And then, um, and Frank Layden, who was the head coach, um, uh, and his son, Scott Layden, who was just starting out in the coaching business, currently the general manager of the Timberwolves. Okay. Uh, they, um, they put a little plan together and they said, look, we want you to come about six weeks early to training camp before anybody else gets there. And so they put me in this intensive weight training program, an intensive running program. And, and Phil Johnson did worked with me with all these drills out of the basketball court. And then they kicked my butt. <laughs> and, uh, and I suddenly realized how much, you know, how, how much more condition I needed to be in to compete at the NBA level. And then when I, when I got, when the season started and we started playing games and I saw how how big, I was a big guy, but how big and strong all the other players were, especially at the center position. I was like, okay, now I really got to get serious about this because these guys are so good and I don't want to be pushed around out there. I want to be the, the pusher and not the pushy. Right. And, uh, and so I, I doubled down on the squats and the cleans and everything else to get as strong as I could so that I could uh, hold my own out there. And that really kept me going even later in my career because, um, you know, again, I wasn't the fastest or, you know, the best shooter, but, but I could hold my own. And when you became in the paint and you, you tangled with me, you're going to remember me the next day. <laughs> and, uh, so um, that became sort of my calling card. And, and, you know, and then it just became sort of uh, self-energizing from that point forward. It's like, well, you know, I had some success. I'm going to do more of this and have more success. And, and I just kept, kept working every offseason. I'm like, all right, I'm going to try and be a little bit better at this or that or the other thing for the next year. Uh, and, uh, and that's really what kept me going. Cause there were times when they could have traded me. There was other players they could have picked up that, you know, probably had better scoring ability or whatever, but, um, they knew that I helped my, the team win. And I think that's what, that's what kept me around. Mm-hmm. Well, it also helped kind of, uh, breeding that, that confidence and success, you know, it's almost, um, a little bit of a snowball effect, right? You just start to get a little bit of, of work going in the right direction. And then, uh, you know, as that confidence grows, it, it's amazing what can happen once you, when you get It is. And, and, and it rubs off, people see it, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's uh, apparent to coaches and the fans and, 
they're like, wow, you know, this guy's really making it happen. And so then they double down and their, uh, you know, their attention to you and their effort to you to, to, to give in more than you want. You know, the worst thing that can happen in sports is the coach stops talking to you, right? <laughs> you know, you're, you're on your way out. You're in uh, trouble. And, uh, so I always, always stayed very close to the coaches and uh, they became great friends as well over time and, and continued well after my playing career was over uh, mm-hmm. because I wanted to know what they were thinking. And, you know, the fans and th- you know, things that went on in, in, in the sports pages or sports radio, whatever it was, were disconcerting at times. And it was always the coaches who brought me back to ground zero and said, don't listen to that stuff. What you do helps our team win. And you just need to focus on that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's also one of those things that I feel like once you're uh, close with the the coaches, I feel like it kind of helps your learning process as well. Like whether you're going through practice and you're kind of watching film and, and maybe it's not even film of you, it's film of other parts of the team. So you get a better understanding of the game. And I mean, I know it in my ski career when we'd be up on the hill doing drills, it wasn't like once I did my section, I was done. I was talking with the coaches, watching the other athletes come down and be like, okay, I see what he's talking about there when he's talking to him. And I feel like that kind of helps your, your process and just become, you know, a better athlete or a better, you know, uh, in general. Yeah, it does. And, and, I, and I think so much of the learning occurs off the hill or off the court. Uh, you know, my favorite memories were going out and having a beer after the game with the coaches at the, just in the hotel bar at night, yeah. you know, and just talking about the game, talking about life and telling stories. And I learned so much about um, the game of, you know, the, the sport of, of professional basketball and what, what was required and what other coaches do. And other, we talk about other players and same thing. I heard, well, you looked at film or, you know, watch something that occurred during the game that night. Um, it's just that that was the real education, uh, I think, for me, um, yeah. that went way beyond what we did on the court. Mm-hmm. Now, going into those off-season, you know, you're talking about the lifting and, and kind of all that maintenance, uh, especially as a big man, you know, being able to take the, the beatings. And it was a much different uh, game back then, a lot more physical and everything else compared to now. I mean, what would you do uh, when you would go in and build a, a game plan? Would it go be with the coaches? And, and when you would go in and do that, would you come up with just like a checklist, uh, a daily checklist of, all right, today I need to shoot X amount of shots at the free throw line? Or, or how would that kind of break down for you? Yeah, it did. It, um, it changed over the years. But, um, but initially, you know, you'd meet with the coaches uh, the last day of the season or after the last, you know, playoff loss, whatever it is. And and they'd give you some ideas about what they'd like to see in improving your game, you know, before the next training camp. So that would get kind of get you started. But over time, you, know, I, I knew what I did on the court. I knew the value I had. You know, they could still keep you or trade you or whatever they wanted to do. But I knew that I had a certain skill set that I was pretty good at. And I knew what I needed to do to stay in condition for that. So I'd start out just taking a couple of weeks off. And then I'd be back on, you know, I got into mountain biking way early when it first started and living in Park City, obviously that was uh, something easy to do. And it was much easier on my, on my knees than trying to run and jog all summer long. Yeah. Uh, so I'd start doing that. I'd be back in the weight room with these guys uh, that had this kind of football uh, training program. And uh, so I was doing some pretty heavy duty weightlifting um, and um and then over the course of the summer, you'd work, start working more, get back in the gym and get back on working on basketball skills. And I'd meet the coaches again, like Phil Johnson, and he'd run me through like an hour process of, uh, 
of uh, dribbling drills and passing drills. And, and he would say, he says, you know, it's not like we need you to dribble the ball, but we need you to have the confidence to dribble the ball because it's going to help right. the rest of your game or rest of your balance. And uh, so I did a lot of that stuff. And then they'd say, okay, now we do little drills like uh, six layups end to end in 30 seconds. And, uh, you know, or we did a drill where I'd get the ball at the free throw line with my back to the basket. And I take one big drop step to the left or to the right and go up and jam it, you know, in one step and uh, things that would just stretch you a little bit more. Um, and so that's the kind of stuff I did during the course of the summer. And then as we got closer to training camp, then I, then I'd really start ramping it up. I'd push myself harder on the mountain bike. And then I'd, in September, I go back out on the track and start doing, you know, the sprint, the straightaways, walk the curves, sprint, the straightaways, walk the curves, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. to really make sure that I was in condition for the beginning of training camp, because it wasn't, um, it wasn't like you went to training camp to get in shape. You better be in shape by the time you get there, because there's so many other things that they're working on. They've got to try and integrate in a short period of time. They're looking at personnel, who are we going to keep, who are we going to get rid of? And, and um, I found that if I was in great shape, they just didn't worry about you as much. And I didn't want them talking about me a whole lot during training camp. <laughs> I want to do my job and keep my head down, even though it's pretty hard to do at 7'4". But, um, uh, you know, that was, but being in great shape going in gave me a little edge. And when John Stockton and Carl Malone came around a couple of years later, they really embodied that. And it became a cultural thing for the team. And maybe you've seen that in skiing as well. But once they became so focused on being in top condition coming into the beginning of the season, the coaches didn't have to mention it to anyone else because the other players saw it. They're yeah. like, geez, you know, I came in, I thought I was just going to get in shape here. And man, John Stockton and Carmel are kicking my butt. And so <laughs> the next year, for sure, those guys, you know, got a little busier during the summertime and, and came back in uh, just as con- you know, good a condition as those guys. I mean, how much of an an advantage do you feel like that kind of gave you throughout the season? I mean, I feel like so much of that's uh, not only the physical, but you also get that that mental edge of like, all right, because uh, essentially back in back then, I, it was such a different time period towards uh, sports in general. It's definitely not as while it was serious, right? I mean, everyone dedicated their time and everything else. I mean. Now, uh, especially uh, younger kids, uh, are you're a basketball player at six years old and you're going to basketball camp and you're in right. and that is your specialty and that's what you're doing. Yeah, it's, um, it's different now than it was back then. But I, I think being in, in great condition gave, you, uh, gave me some confidence that uh, you know, after you, especially after you go through a couple of three seasons and you understand what it really takes right. to be consistent, because as you well know, it's great if you have a, you know, one great run this month, you know, this month, but, you know, what are you going to do next week, right? Yep. And uh, you can't have a drop off. You've got to build that consistency and the consistency comes primarily from conditioning, uh, being able to take the beating, take the pounding uh, and, uh, and come back the next night and do it again. I mean, sometimes we play five games and seven nights in five different cities. And so, um, you know, it's great what happened on Monday, but it's now Friday and we're four cities later. And you better you better get it together. And so, yeah. learning how to do that, I think, uh, uh, through the conditioning process, really helped give me an edge. Where the coaches knew they could count on me to to give a great effort. And some days the shots didn't go, and some days you didn't run as fast, or whatever. You're tired, sure. or, you know, the other things that, that played into being on the road. But um, but they knew they had a good foundation to work with to at least start the game and. And uh, I always wanted to be one of those starting five guys that they knew they could count on. Yeah. 
being able to be counted on is definitely a good good feeling what was that travel like back then because i mean the the you you see a little bit in like the last dance right and that's even even a little bit further ahead you know that documentary over the summer with with jordan was so enlightening but i mean it's just one of those things that that uh, you don't realize in today's game right because everyone's flying private or everything i mean what was that especially for someone that's seven four what was that day in day out on the road grind i mean that had to be well it was it was rough because you know if you played uh, today in salt lake city and tomorrow you're playing in san antonio you had to take the first available flight uh, because they needed backups in case there was a problem with one of the planes. Uh, so you were at the airport at 5.30, 6.30 in the morning, catching the 7 a.m. to Dallas to change planes to go to San Antonio. And, uh, you know, we flew all commercial. And then, and then you're sitting in baggage claim and you got, you know, 20 people, 25 people that are traveling. And so they've got two buses. And you got to wait to get all the bags. We probably got 60, 70 bags, something like that. Get all that loaded in. So we're just sitting in baggage claim on those hard ass, oh, sorry, hard plastic chairs. <laughs> um, and uh, it was rough on you. And then, you know, like, what do I eat? So I got to play tonight. And so, you know, back then it's like chili dogs or whatever you could find in the airport or at the hotel, grab a quick sandwich, take a quick nap and go play. Uh, so it was, um, it was challenging physically to, to do that. And I think, uh, you know, once they, the team started doing the charter airplanes, which I think Pistons were the first team to do that okay. with, with the bad boys, mm-hmm. uh, that became all of a sudden a big deal. I think the Jazz were the last team to do it. Uh, <laughs> I think I could have played another year or two if we'd had that because it was just so hard on your body to get done with the game. Then you got to go find something to eat at 11 o'clock at night. You don't fall asleep till 2 or 3 in the morning because you're wound up from the game. You're up at 6. You know, you're back at the airport and, you know, just doing that day after day after day after day, it was just, it was, it was pretty hard on your body, much less being seven foot four trying to do it. That's an, I mean, that's just a crazy grind to especially think about now. I mean, where it is, that's, that's unbelievable to kind of just go through, just flying on the plane commercial, waiting yeah. around. And then, I mean, it's crazy just to think about how much, uh, you know, the nutrition's even changed in like the last four or five years, like from when <laughs> I was competing and everything else. Now it's like this whole thing, you know, we would be like, all right, let's stop at the nearest fast food place. We're in a rush. We got to get to the next spot. So we're in our 10 hour drive to Canada. Okay. We're stopping here. This is the spot. And that's right. It's Popeye's like, chicken today, <laughs> baby. Go win a gold medal. Exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, so that's that's just how it is, and, you know. And there's just some days you just have to deal with that. And and we we all paid attention to our our nutrition. We tried to do things, but back then it was the beginning of uh, carbo loading and eat to win and that kind of stuff. And then you know, and then it kind of moved into the zone diet and other things. And, and then there was Michael Jordan who just had a you know 20 ounce T-bone steak at three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> Good. <laughs> I look back at that now. I'm like, geez, you know, I sure. Probably should have eaten more steak, um, but um, yeah, yeah, but yeah, you just you know you just deal with it, and that's part of that is that that pre that summer conditioning again, and at least giving yourself a chance to get through the season because you know there's going to be days like that, and there's no there's days you're just you know grabbing whatever you can find to eat, and you got to go play because that's just what the schedule is. You just can't right. can't do anything about it. So. But thanks for good stories. Yeah, definitely. So, so going through and, and be traveling on the road, kind of being tired, going through all that routine, like what helped you kind of stay focused on the priorities that, that you needed to 
take care of like game day once it was into to game mode did you kind of have a routine before the game and kind of look through like some notes or or something like yeah, that yeah i, to kind I of did I, I took some sports psychology classes when i was at ucla and okay and um and then my coach tom the junior college coach had given me some stuff to think about and so I just walked around the painted area under the basket and I would just tell myself, I'm the biggest, baddest, you know what, out of the court tonight. Mm -hmm. um, even though I was playing against Olajuwon or Patrick Ewing or David Robinson or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, whoever it was, uh, I knew on that given day that they were going to have to mess with me. And so that's how I kind of psyched myself up. And I'd spend some time in the afternoons just kind of visualizing great plays and seeing the ball go through the net and things like that that you learn in sports psychology. Uh, and, and just to be centered in who you are on the basketball court, but also being very aware of what's going on around you, that kind of existential uh, visualization stuff they teach you. Sure. So I did a lot of that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if it helped or not all the time, but um, <laughs> some days you play great, some days you don't. Uh, right. but, um, but I tried to at least have get a good mental focus about that. And um, uh, and at least come to the game with that that intention of that's how I tried to set myself to succeed that on that particular night. Um, um, so yeah, it was a you know it's like it's mental practice, like just like you practice physically and keep your, get yourself in shape. It's just part of part of sure. being an athlete. Now, did you have? I mean, say there's a night when you know you're playing, you're going up against Elijah Wong or David Robinson or something like. Would you be more concerned about yourself, or would that, or would the opponent also be like, okay, I know I'm going up, I got to make sure my level's raised while you're doing your self talk. They got to deal with me, but also in the back of your head, are you thinking a little bit like, okay, going up against Elijah Wong, like he better be ready for what I'm bringing and. And would that kind of come, would that be in some of the thought process? Yeah, you know, we, we would talk about strategies in the, in the shoot around that day or the practice the day before um, about how to, how to best uh, play those guys, what their tendencies are. I mean, even back then we had statistics, of, you know, percentages of when they go right, they score this much. When they go left, they score, you know, they score, when they go left, they only score 17% of the time. When they go right, they score 42% of the time. Little things like that, you know, that gotcha. you learn. And so you had to work that into the game plan of like, all right, every time he gets the ball, I'm going to force in this direction. I'm counting on my teammate to come over and, and help. Um, but uh, yeah, you'd spend some time focused on that. Um, but there, and then and there's also times when it's just you one-on-one. -on -one. If you get, you know, when it gets down to crunch time, sometimes it's difficult for teammates to give you help defensively. And so, Sometimes the coach is like, I'd love to help you, but I can't leave that guy, Robert Ori, out there in the corner to, to, uh, to shoot three-pointers all day. And so, uh, you know, you got Elijah one on your own tonight, big guy. And, uh, yeah. and so you just did, did what you did. And, you know, over time you learn little things that would bug other players, little idiosyncrasies they had, or mm -hmm. try and push them another two feet out, further out on the floor so they're a little more uncomfortable. They weren't in their sweet spot. You know, things like that you try to do just to mess with them. Right. And, um, and a lot of times you could get under their skin or get to they'd get mad about being pushed around during the first half of the game. The second half, they'd get a little hot bothered about it and maybe throw an elbow or something. And then you're like, okay, I broke his concentration. So that was the objective. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a win. I mean, how, how different is it watching like the NBA now compared to back when you play? I mean, do you, how do you feel about the fact that there's so much like less, less contact? I mean, you got Harden going into the paint, and I mean, it's just a different yeah, type I, of game now, right? Well, you know, I mean, it, 
you always have to remember the NBA is about entertainment first and foremost. And so sure. fans always want to see more scoring. They want to see more slam dunks. And I think they, they miss a lot of the nuances of the game because of that. Um, I, I like the contact. I like the fact, I mean, you know, I like being able to touch guys a little bit. And I think in the playoffs, we've seen that they let a little bit more of it go. Um, you know, they don't want fights, obviously, and stuff like that. But we actually kind of loved fights and things like that back, in, <laughs> back when I played. Um, so uh, so it's, it's, it's just a different game now. And people grow up differently. I mean, we grew up playing street ball and playing in, you know, in the gyms in downtown L.A. And now, you know, and then not too far after that, the, the AAU thing got going and kids grew up doing that. It's just a whole different experience. So they have a different, you know, um, relationship to that aspect of the game of the pushing and the shoving. And we didn't have a lot of friends on other teams where they all grew up playing, you know, AAU, high school, traveling teams, all that stuff with each other. And so I guess they look at it a little bit differently than, than we did. Right. Now, so I mean, it's a totally different world when it, when it comes to that. I mean, me growing, growing up, I remember, I mean, obviously you guys, the Bulls, the Pit, I mean, it, it was one of those things. And, and that was fun to watch because that physicality, you could, you could see, I'm, I'm thinking of the, uh, just the last dance with Jordan going up against the Knicks that one series, right? Where those are, I mean, it's a foul, it's hard fouls, but I mean, it oh, brings yeah. out right. that extra competitiveness, right? It brings out yeah. that extra, uh, yeah. you get to see that greatness come out of Jordan. It's just, uh, it's, so it's an interesting aspect yeah. watching the game now where it's like, you can't even, start to get into that and then Harden's fat they blow the whisper hard and he's going on the free throw line and he's got a great game the way he he plays and free throw shooter but it I feel like it makes it just a little bit less entertaining and bring them to the line so much yeah and I think sometimes the tendency is they, they they get a little create too much distance between players and guys shoot too freely and there's times like when I was watching the jazz this during this playoff run and when they would just have a complete defensive breakdown. And a lot of it is because of that, that kind of cultural thing that they, they kind of revert back to even subconsciously where they're not up in, in guys' faces and really pushing them and, and body checking them and all the rest of the stuff that you need to do to, to just to play great defense. And um, sometimes I have to get up and walk out of the room for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that'll, that'll happen sometimes. That'll happen, you know. It's, uh, it's definitely an interesting, interesting times down there in the, in the bubble, but it's been a entertaining. Uh, playoffs have been entertaining for sure. Yeah. So back to you, one thing I, I always uh, was kind of curious about, I mean, coming in late into, uh, into your athletic career, you know, 21, getting into it more in uh, the 16 years, just a little bit about the perseverance that you kind of have to go through because there are so many days where things are clicking, everything is working well. But uh, there's a lot of times, especially in this day and age, no one really wants to talk about the nitty gritty of uh, when things are not uh, working well. You're failing. You're, you're losing. Things are not clicking. Yeah, I, I think that uh, um, perseverance doesn't get the accolades I think it deserves because there's it's not I mean, it, you got to have some talent. There's no question about that. But that seems to be the people that persevere the most are the ones that um, you know, that, that uh, end up on top at the end. And uh, it's that extra time of, of learning how to do the, learning how to do, oh, sorry, my phone ringing. Nope, no worries. Get rid of that. Um, I, I, I just think that um, there's, you can get a lot of things done if you just persevere. And even if in business, you see people that just kind of grind it out. Like they have a good plan, 
Um, they don't seem to be getting anywhere, but they just kind of stay at it and stay at it and stay at it. And, and if you're smart about what you're doing, eventually you'll, you'll find a break. You know, something will pop up or something will shift because mm-hmm. you did that. And, uh, and so I, I, I pay attention to that a lot, especially as we've gone through this whole COVID thing. We've had a lot right. of us trying to reinvent ourselves. It's like, all right, what assets do I have? What can I leverage in a different way? And how do I go about it? And once you decide that, then it's that just plugging away at it every day, every day, every day. Okay, what are the three things I'm going to do today that are going to move my business forward that I'm going to get done whether I, whether I want to or not, even if it's at 10 o'clock at night. And that's, that's from a little book from a friend of mine named Mark LeBlanc. And um, so, but it's, but it's that consistent effort, even if it's just one action step or two action steps that you get done that day that can make the difference because it just builds over time. It gets better, better, better. And by the end of the month, you've got 30 things done. And, um, um, and that's, that to me, just nothing happens quick. Everybody wants the quick fix, the quick turnaround. Mm-hmm. It doesn't work that way. But if you, if you're willing to hang in there and, and keep focused and keep working day after day after day, well, you know, it'll, you'll amaze yourself at what will pop loose because you put in that effort. Right. And for, so for you, was it uh, looking at things, breaking it down like monthly or would it be like, okay, these are the goals for just today or would you break it down weekly, monthly? How would you go? Are, through we, talking about, are we talking about athletics or business? Uh, 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 let's go, well, let's go business. We've been talking about athletics. Let's go with a business world a little after uh, athletics. Uh, yeah, I think, I think uh, from the business standpoint, mm-hmm. it, yeah, you do have to have some goals of what you like to see. You have to paint a picture of, you know, like the old Stephen Covey thing, begin with the end in mind. Right. Right. Um, but um but then, yeah, it's broke. You have to break it down into little tasks, little small tasks. And, okay. and then you have to prioritize those tasks based on what's going to move yourself further the fastest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're first starting out, it's really hard because you're still trying to conceptualize what you're doing and where you're going. But as you start to get just a little bit of traction, it becomes so much clearer about the things you need to focus on and the things that you need to delegate or not do. Uh, because, um, and, and we, I think delude ourselves sometimes into thinking we got to be doing all these other things when right. the reality is you need to get on the phone with the person that can write the check that I heard <laughs> you or, or get the next contract more so than you need to work on your website or make sure your Twitter is up to date. And, uh, and you know, those things are just become rabbit holes that you go down to and you wonder at the end of the week, like, why didn't I get anything done? Why aren't I further ahead? And so, um, a, a very wise person once told me, you know, the, the mantra needs to be, what's the shortest distance between me and a check? And that's how you, that's what you use your filter for your activities. <laughs> and it works. <laughs> and it works. I'm making sure I write that down. <laughs> so kind of speaking to that, I mean, obviously that's some advice for, for other people um, to kind of approach uh, either their businesses or in their lives. What, what else would you kind of offer to them? Um, I mean, obviously you have your book, which uh, I have ordered. Uh, I got it ordered up on uh, Amazon should be here tomorrow. So uh, I very much look forward to, uh, to reading. I've heard nothing but good things. So. You know, I think in general during this time right now, it's um, number one, kind of trying to stay centered and not get too wound up in all of the um, noise that's out there in the space, whether it's, um, 
you know, whatever's going on, there's just every day, it's just hard, it's hard to know what to believe, what to read. And, sure. and so that can, that can be very draining uh, energetically. And so I, I try and stay in a place of, of, I know who I am, I know where I'm going, I know what I'm doing. And yeah, okay, I'm not making the sales right now, like I was a few months ago, right. but I still have a lot to offer. And uh, so I think reframing that of looking at what your assets are and how you can maybe double down on them. You don't always have to go and learn something new. It's about repositioning what, who you already are, what you already do, what you already bring to the table. And that's something we don't generally look at. You know, we're, we're, we're easy. It's easy for us to see it in other people mm-hmm. and we tell them about it. But when it comes back to looking at yourself and what you bring to the party and what your greatest strengths and traits are, uh, that's something that's, I think, vitally important, especially right now, because those are the, the, the values and the characteristics that are going to stand the test of time. And, and we've seen that throughout history. So um, I think that's my best advice right now is, is to, um, you know, turn down the noise a little bit and spend a little more time with yourself about and thinking about what, what bubbles up for you, what's your intuition telling you about what you need to be doing next and start paying attention to that. Because Otherwise, you'll just find yourself lost in Twitter all day long. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's a it's, scary place. <laughs> it, I, I have not been on, which is, uh, which is good. I try to uh, steer clear. That was a good documentary. Actually, my uh, wife watched. Um, so she's trying to do 10 minutes a day of, uh, of social media. She's totally got it down. So that's been, it's been pretty good. It allows uh, a lot more time for you to, for you to get things done. Uh, for sure. It's definitely, but I really like the, the repositioning and kind of, um, you know, focusing on what you do well, you know, cause I feel like uh, a lot in this day and age is uh, they always try to focus on the bad things, right? Where you need your work, where you need to work on, but especially kind of in this yeah, space. Yeah, we have this tendency to think about our weaknesses all the time. Right, and, for sure. Uh, and if you've had any kind of career in business or uh, had a few jobs, whatever it is, you've learned things. And those things that you've learned are the things you need to go back to and say, how can I take this little bowl of assets and, and put it out somewhere else or put it in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, it's not always easy to do. because they're like, I don't know what I do. Well, well go and ask three people, you know, right. yeah. ask your spouse, ask your boss, ask your coworker, ask the customer, uh, because those are the things that, that you're known for and that you can leverage mm-hmm. uh, going forward. And um, so that's my, that's my go-to uh, advice. Now, what was that transition like? Because I know for a lot of uh, athletes and, and people when they're kind of making that transition after their career's over into the business world, into that next step, uh, it's a lot easier said than done. You know, uh, for a lot of people, it's like my identity's kind of taken away for at least a little while. They go through these kind of really hard periods. And fortunately, I knew I loved coaching so that I was able to transition fairly easily with school and, and, and things of that nature, which was kind of nice. I didn't really have much of a break to really stop and think like, oh God, what do I do now with my life? But I know that that right. happens for, for lots of different people. And did you have any difficulty with that transition? Oh yeah, because, um, because when you retire from sports particular, in, in particular, uh, you know, you go from being really focused on one thing all the time. Like for 16 years, I played basketball. That's all I did. Uh, and then all of a sudden, it's like, well, here's the menu now, and good luck. And you open it up, and it's like, uh, you know, where do I start? 
so yeah, it's a it's a, it's a real and, and then the issue is that you're always known as an athlete, like oh you're that mogul skier or you're that right. downhiller, you know what are you doing now? But they always see you as that athlete. So how can you take that and and put it in a different box? Is a big uh, is a really a big challenge. Um, so. Um, in terms of in terms of advice, yes, you are you are some of those dark periods. But I think in the process of going through those kind of darker days, you learn more about yourself. You learn what you can do, and if you get out and network enough and talk to other people, you'll find what other people appreciate about you, and be able to to use that as a as a calling card to create what it is ever it is you want to do next. And and it's definitely not easy. And I spent a lot of days, years uh, trying to start the speaking business without any idea of what I was doing. I had some friends that did it. A couple right. of friends I went to UCLA with who were Olympians that were successful doing it. Some people in Salt Lake that I talked to. But you actually sitting down and writing your own story and coming up with your own points, eventually I figured out that I needed to find a coach. And, uh, and that's what I did. Uh, because again, being athletes, like we're, we're usually pretty coachable mm -hmm. and if you can find somebody who's really, you know, and we're also pretty good at discerning like who's, who's real and who's not right. Right. Yeah. People that talk, people that talk a big game versus people that actually do it. And, sure. uh, so I found somebody that actually could do it and, uh, and that helped me a lot. And, but even with that, once I got it put together, then there was a whole other learning process. It was kind of like starting out in basketball 101 again, when it was speaking 101, like, you know, what's the message? Why do people hire speakers? Why do they bring them in? What do they want to hear? You know, what kind of message you have to put together? How do you take your stories of who you are and what you've learned and put them in a way that a business audience is going to benefit from them? There was a lot of, a lot of um, learning that had to occur over a period of three or four years to where I really felt like I was, okay, now I finally got it. I know I'm delivering something that people value. Um, they invite me back. They like me. <laughs> they applaud. Right. Um, that's a good thing. <laughs> so, uh, I think we're finally hitting the sweet spot here. Uh, but, uh, but man, it can be, it can be challenging. And then, and then there's the whole, you know, other aspect of once you develop that, then how do I market it? How do people find out about me and all the things that go on that? And it's, you know, an entrepreneur's job is never done. It's just, it's just a journey. It's just never, there's yeah. no big end point. You just learn as you go. Right. There is, there is no finish line. But so how was that kind of public speaking for you? Cause I know I've had uh, other guests on in the past and that's always been one of the biggest uh, things for them. They come through their athletic career and you know, they don't really think about it. And then they're in this room and they're talking in front of 150 people. And it's like, Whoa. This is, uh... <laughs> it's, it's hard. And, and even if you've done, like I did television for quite a while before that, and uh, that's relatively easy to do in comparison to being on stage and, and uh, being live and actually being expected to motivate and inspire people in a room of 200 people who, are, who have been there all day, locked up in the room and you know, may have just finished uh, listening to two hours of the CEO discuss the financial report. Um, and it's like, bam, now you're on. Uh, so, um, you know, it's a, it was, um, it was a transition. Um, and it's just, you know, it's, it's like, it's like starting over again with like, well, here's your skis and here's your poles. Right. And, and, and there's a jump down there at the bottom and there's about 75 bumps between there and, you know, and, and how am I going to get down that thing? And, um, 
so you know, you just you just have to go and do it. And and uh, one of my friends down in Las Vegas, um, great speaker, he always says, "Speak more to speak more." And so you, I had to be willing to just go and do speak wherever I could find. I spoke at the Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the Chamber of Commerce, anybody that would have me. And when I first wrote my speech, I'd literally just read it to him uh, because I hadn't memorized it yet. And, right. um, but I told him ahead of time, I'm like, I'm, they weren't paying me anything. I was just uh, coming <laughs> in to show up. But, uh, but I got a sense of, wow, they got good feedback. They said, wow, that's really a, a great message. And, you know, keep going with that. And mm-hmm. that would inspire me enough to go back into work on it a little bit more and try to memorize a little bit more and, uh, but it was, it wasn't easy. I mean, I, there's no quick transition unless you've got a professional, uh, you know, if you've got a professional coach or somebody mm-hmm. that writes speeches for presidents or something like that, that can, they can whip you something out, but yeah. it still has to be your message. And I think, um, a lot of speakers make the mistake of just trying to use some sort of canned stuff that you hear from a lot of speakers. And I think the uniqueness for me and, and many of my friends is, taking the time to really find your stories and put them together in a way uh, that is valuable for other people. And that's a, it's an art, um, but, sure. it, but it can be done. Yeah. Well, it really kind of, I mean, it, it speaks to your attitude. I mean, everything that we've talked about, I mean, you really seem to just have this attitude of going out and, and doing it and, and being willing to kind of put in that work and, and fine tune and be able to, put yourself out there, right? Like if you're going through and you're speaking to a group and you've never done public speaking, even if you are doing it for free, there would be so many people that uh, would probably not even be willing to have the fear of like, oh, I got a piece of paper. I'm just going to read this paper. They probably wouldn't go out on stage, right? Yeah. And I was one of those guys. I'd throw some notes on a yellow legal pad and go out and talk to somebody. And looking now on it, I'm mortified that I did that (laughs) uh, because I must have sucked. But, um, uh, you know, but again, I was willing to try it. And, and, um, um, you know, you just don't know. I had, I had somebody local in Park City to help me with my first part of the presentation. And, I started kind of doing it and I was kind of like it, but I wasn't really sure. And it wasn't until I met this other coach who, who really helped me drill down a little bit further into what my truths were and was able to put that on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, that's when it really started kind of hitting the sweet spot. And, uh, but you just don't know, you have to go speak and you got to fall on your face and you got to say, you know, record yourself and they have to sit there and watch it and go, Oh my God. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, then you just, that's just how you learn. It's like anything else. So first time I picked up a basketball, same thing. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so I was a little rough out there. So, um, you know. And is it that same process? I mean, when you came through and uh, with the book, the four commitments of um, a winning team, is that the same process you kind of went through or how did you, how'd you like, okay, how'd you come about the idea for the book? Well, um, many speakers use a book as their platform. Um, as athletes, we have an advantage because we can just throw some highlights from the Olympics up there, right, right. or NBA highlights, and uh, that at least will get you in the door. Um, and so I really put off doing a book for a long time, and uh, my wife and I finally decided, like, we got to get this thing done. Uh, but it, And it was hard. The same thing, trying to find somebody to kind of help us with the writing, uh, get the and take the speech and kind of expand it and go deeper with it and how do you do that and how do you make it resonate and uh, so it was you know it was kind of hit and miss trying to find somebody and it took a long time I quit I quit writing it two or three times because I'm like oh this is never going to work and they're going to find the right person this 
these stories aren't coming together. This thing is just a big hodgepodge of, of you know, stuff. And, um, but, um, but over time, because I kept asking and kept going to stuff and, you know, got a, a buddy who's a great author here in Salt Lake that I visited with, uh, Richard Paul Evans, and he invited me to an author workshop. And he took a lot of the mystery out of the whole process and, and it finally helped me get me refocused and down where I could get the thing over the finish line. And then, uh, and we we're very realistic about how we thought we were going to sell books and where we were going to sell books. And so we wrote the book from that perspective okay. uh, because we knew we weren't going to, um, uh, you know, we're not, we're not going to be an Amazon number one bestseller or anything. I knew I was going to sell books to the sp people I speak to. And sure. um, so that was, um, that, that those, those kind of lessons you just had to learn as you went. But it, same thing, it was the perseverance. It's like, well, I never completely gave up on it. I put it aside for a few years, mm -hmm. but it just kind of kept coming back around and coming back around and finally the right people came in place and it just all kind of just in very short order came together and all of a sudden it was done. I was like, wow, we actually yeah. did that. We actually got it done. I didn't care if I sold one. It was just the process <laughs> of getting the thing done was, uh, was just so remarkable because it's just, it's quite an undertaking. Yeah, no, I mean, it sounds like it's, it's, it's quite the process for sure. And it's not that big of a book. I'm like, I don't know how people <laughs> do it that write, you know, five, six, 700 page books. So. Right. No, that, I mean, that willingness to, to go through and, and go through that process is so inspiring though. Uh, just to hear the, and, and it's one thing, like I said, I was speaking to your attitude, just to, to open the doors and, and continue to, to try to have that uh, kind of attitude of like, all right, it's not clicking right now. Let me try and see what's behind door number 70. Let's right. see what's in there. Maybe this is what it's going to take to kind of uh, make it click and, and make it work for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So um, one more thing I wanted to ask, I was quite curious about uh, still did, a passion for auto cars. Any, uh, cause I know you were the uh, auto mechanic. What kind of led you down into into that um, uh, my my father was a was a diesel mechanic worked primarily on boats and okay. I grew up I grew up in the LA harbor on Saturdays with him working on old boats from the 30s and 40s and old diesel engines and things like that and so um, I had a basic understanding of that kind of stuff mm -hmm. and when I finished high school a friend of mine was going to trade school in Arizona I didn't know what to do next. And he's like, Hey, come on though. It's a 12 month program. They give you a government loan for the tuition, which I think was like 3,500 bucks back then in 1975. And uh, they helped you find an apartment. They finally helped you find a job. And so I'm like, yeah, all right, sounds reasonable. So we loaded up our old cars and drove to Phoenix and I worked uh, all night at a Jack in the box restaurant and went to school during the day. And we lived in this uh, little uh, tiny studio apartment called the Glen Rosa Twilighter. <laughs> and, uh, Very cool. It, yeah, they had a giant marijuana leaf painted on the bottom of the pool. <laughs> it was quite the place. Um, and so um, and there's all these guys living there that were going to trade school. It was, it was a crazy time. But, huh. but we got through that year and, um, you know, and I came back out with a certificate. I was a quote unquote certified mechanic and, um, and uh, got a job back in California at a Cadillac dealership, got fired within about six weeks. <laughs> and, uh, and I ended up at this tire store, you know, doing tune-ups, brakes, front end, any of that kind of stuff. So it was, uh, it was just something I, I enjoyed doing. I, I, didn't, I didn't know if it was going to be my career. I didn't know where it was going to go, but it was sure. like something to do in the meantime. And I felt like it was always a, a skill that I could always fall back on. And, uh, 
So I still have my toolbox in my barn if I need it. <laughs> yeah, no, it's good. I mean, I, uh, the first car I got was a 96 Ford Explorer with, I think like 170,000 miles on it. And I mean, I absolutely loved that thing and did all the, you know, I would do, I learned how to work on that car, brakes, right. rotors, water pump. And, you know, I didn't have the money to take it into a mechanic shop. So uh, I had to look. This yep. was like pre YouTube. Cause you had like the book to go through as, as YouTube was getting their videos yep. and then it became super easy. Like, yep. Oh, this is on Still YouTube. Auto manual. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I was just kind of, uh, kind of curious for sure. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, I sure. really appreciate it. And, um, I look forward, uh, for people out there that, uh, where can they, uh, find out more? Uh, on my website, sevenfoot4.com, or you just Google me, Mark Eaton, or yep. uh, you can pull up my book on Amazon or Kindle or Audible, uh, The Four Commitments of a Winning Team. Perfect. All right. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thanks, everybody. All right. Thank you, man. Good luck. All right. Thanks. Bye. See you. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Thanks a lot for listening in. I really appreciate it. Please make sure to take the time to like, share, and subscribe our show. And also, you can follow along on Instagram. Thanks.